and welcome to the Pricing Queen podcast with me, Sally Farrant. Each week on the podcast, I'll be sharing pricing tips and strategies along with ways to improve the profit in your business. I've got a track record for helping companies get their heads around their business numbers, and now I'm here to show you how to start earning the money you deserve and become a pricing queen yourself. And welcome to the Pricing Queen podcast. Today on the show, I am talking to Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is the author of Ali Billing is Nuts, and he talks a lot about value pricing in his business and how you should move away from hourly billing because it, as I talk about always, it punishes efficiency and means that you can never scale your business. Don't be put off by the numbers in this episode because I think there's huge amounts of value, even though Jonathan's talking about $100,000 sometimes in expenditure. But I think it can be applied to many situations in much smaller businesses. And I want you to listen particularly about the why conversation and also about retainers, because I think our notion of retainers is quite different from what he talks about. And that having the why conversation when you're having a discovery call can make all the difference in judging the price that you're going to put on your work. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Hi there, welcome to the show. And today on the show, I've got Jonathan Stark. Hi, Jonathan. Hey. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I'm a former software developer now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. (laughs) Yeah, so Jonathan has a great book called Hourly Billing is Nuts. And I was just saying to him before we started that I've got it all kind of highlighted and marked out because it's just a brilliant, brilliant book. Oh, thanks. So tell us why hourly billing is nuts. I mean, there's a a million reasons, but uh, the the most self-serving one is that it puts an artificial ceiling on your income. So, you know, there's only so many hours in the week, so many weeks in the year. And in most industries, there's a a functional cap on what you can charge by the hour before people just slam the door in your face. You know, you can't just raise your hourly rate to $1,000 an hour. It's $2,000 an hour. It's $5,000 an hour. People will just be like, "Uh, no, I don't think so. So, um, yeah, it just limits your income. I mean, there are a bunch of other things, too. It, It allows you to get started before you actually know what the client wants. Uh, there's an old joke, uh, two consultants are talking to each other and one of them says, you start working, I'll go find out what they want. <laughs> it's like you can start billing before you know what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, it also uh, creates trucks, trust fractures in the relationship where you know the, the financial incentives are completely backwards between you and the client. If, if you're billing by the hour, you get paid more the longer it takes. The client pays less, the faster it gets completed. So you get penalized for, well, the, the trust problem is that it's easy for them to imagine, even if I know, I know all of your listeners are the most ethical people on planet earth, but it's easy for a client to imagine, especially when things take longer than the client would have expected that you're padding your hours or you're taking your time or you're not as efficient as you could be, uh, that sort of thing. It encourages scope creep. I mean, I could go on and on. But I think it also means that, yeah, you could kind of end up quibbling for hours over the bill, which sort of seems self-defeating. Yeah, that's the classic. The classic is when when uh, sellers or freelancers or consultants or coaches charge the client for the time it takes quibbling over hours, as you put it. It's just a complete distraction from what anybody wants although I recognize that it's this consensual hallucination that's been in place for 
probably over 100 years at this point. So uh, that's, that's the mission. I'm out there trying to get people to realize how nuts it is. And, and, and in order to do that, we have to give them another alternative. You know, what, what is the way that you should be getting paid for services? So that way is... Oh, there's a, a few different ways, but I would say uh, fixed pricing for sure. Um, whether you're doing productized services that are basically all the same scope, no matter who you deliver them to, or if you're doing custom projects that are non-trivial collaborative efforts between you and a client, uh, I would usually go with value pricing for something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're giving a price. You're pricing your work instead of billing for your time. Billing and pricing are not the same thing. A lot of people use those words interchangeably, and they're absolutely not the same thing. Pricing happens upfront, billing happens after. So when someone, when a client engages you by the hour, there is no price. There's no price until the engagement's over and they can retroactively see how much money they gave you. That ultimately is, you've kind of reversed engineered or backed your way into a price six months later that they never were able to agree to upfront. So if you give them a price up front, when people say, oh, my price is $100 an hour or my price is $10,000, but that's really just an estimate, you haven't yeah. priced anything. Yeah, so you can end up like charging the client two, three times as much as they expected to pay. The client has no idea how much it's going to be at the outset, which is one of the big things that I think hourly billing does is to mean that you kind of you're telling the client i don't know how much it's going to be how many hours i can tell you roughly how much it's going to be but i don't actually know at this point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and the the worst the thing about billing uh, hourly billing which i think is is borderline unethical is that it creates a dynamic where the client can end up paying more than it's worth to them which is when they start to freak out that like you can tell when you're starting to get up to the value of the project to the client, when they start uh, going over your hours with a fine tooth comb, they start to get irritable. Uh, they start to use caps lock in their email messages to you. It's they start they're starting to freak out because they look at how much they've spent with you. And at a gut level, they're like, if I known it was going to be this much, I never would have even done it. It's not worth this much to me. So, you know, it's like the, the analogy I use is like, I used to have, you know, when I was in my 20s, I had a junker car, just a piece of junk car. Everything was wrong with it. Uh, I just needed it to last like six more months, six more months, six more months. So if I brought it in and they said, you know, the car cost me $500. If I brought it in and the mechanic was like, uh, oh, it's, it's, yeah, well, you need a new clutch. It, it'll be $60 an hour. I would, of course, want to know, well, how many hours is it going to take? Because I don't want to spend more than $500 because I could buy another junker for that. You know, I don't need a new clutch in this piece of junk. So if if the if the mechanic says, eh, it, it'll probably be less than $500, and then we get up to like, we're getting, start getting close to $500 hours-wise, I'm going to start to get really nervous. And he's going to want the money for the time that he put in. So we're in this like loggerheads because he feels like, I owe him money for the time. You well, you owe me for my time, but I didn't get a result yet. I still don't have a drivable car, and there's no end in sight for how much this new clutch is going to cost. It's terrible. I mean, it makes no sense. So instead, what you want is you want the mechanic to give you a price. How much is it going to be? It's going to be two thousand dollars. Well, then never mind, because I don't. It's not worth it. I'll just spend a thousand dollars on a new car and save a thousand bucks. 
it's it's nuts <laughs> so then you get into the um problem of people saying well if i do a fixed price with the client mm -hmm. how do i not lose out and make sure that i don't have loads of loads of extra hours that i'm not billing for mm -hmm. right add a zero to your price so the, the reason that people get freaked out about uh, fixed prices is because they've been doing it wrong Usually when people have experience with fixed, like when I meet someone and they're like, oh, fixed prices never, no, that's crazy. We tried that once and we got killed. And I'll say, well, how did you calculate the price that you gave them? And they say, well, we estimated our hours, then we, and then they'll always say, and then we, you know, marked it up by 15% for project management or some like random thing. And then, then they present that price to the client. You're always going to get killed like that. 90% of the time, you're going to feel like you're losing money with that model because your price is way too low for what you're planning on doing. So if you're going to take a value pricing approach, start with the value and scope last, then you can actually just for sure, absolutely 100% sure, build profit into the price. So whichever price they pick, if you give them three prices and they pick one, two, or three, whichever one they pick, there's a scope there that you'd be happy to deliver at that amount of money. And since you're giving the price up front, the client can decide, you know, is this price acceptable to me, which is another way of saying, is this price lower than what it's worth to me? Then they're not going to get burned because you, you've, you've given them a price up front. So if you scope last instead of scoping first, then it, you know, I'm not saying that there's no, there's no art to it. You know, you still have to be, uh, you still have to think, we can talk about it more. There's still things to worry about there. But if you've been scoping first and then estimating hours and then adding a negligible markup to that and then presenting it to the client, you haven't had any of the conversations you need to control scope creep because you really don't even know what their objective is at this point. You're just like, eh, I think it'll take this many hours and so it'll work out to like $20,000. Is that acceptable? And they say, yeah. And then two years later, you're still working on the project because you're, you're driving around in the dark. It's like you're, it's like they, uh, it's like you're a, a cab driver and somebody gets in the back and just says, uh, here, I'll give you, uh, you know, whatever, 500 bucks, just drive. And so now you're just driving and then they're like, well, we're still not where I want it to go. Keep driving, keep driving until we accidentally end up where I want to go. It's also nuts, you know, not knowing what your objective is before you start driving the car, not knowing your destination before you start driving. You just, you don't have any way to make a choice. Should I turn left or right here? So you're just driving around randomly hoping to end up at the destination that the client had in mind. So of course the scope creeps. If instead you have the why conversation during your sales interview right up front, you can find out where they're trying to go first. And then you can set a price for your contribution to getting them to that place. Once you have that, you know where you're going. So it's really easy to control scope creep compared to the other model where you don't even know where you're going. So of course you're not going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, when you put it like that, it seems like completely bonkers, doesn't it? But it just doesn't seem like that. It is completely bonkers. <laughs> um, so tell me a bit more about the why conversation. Yes. So when somehow you come in contact with a prospect, so someone is thinking about hiring you, maybe they got your name from someone and they understand vaguely what you do. Maybe you're a web designer. I work with mostly software developers, but also like copywriters and designers and photographers and those sorts of things. So when someone reaches out to you, they say, Hey, you know, Alice gave me your name. Uh, I'd love to talk. Uh, I think we need 
you know, some work done on our website. You say, sure, I, I do that kind of thing. Let's jump on a call and see if there's a good fit. So you get when you get on that phone call or meeting or whatever it is, you want to go through a series of, of why questions. I call it the why conversation where you you essentially try to talk them out of working with you in order to convince yourself that you can improve their condition. Like you're not sure when someone jumps on the phone with you if you can actually help them. So it would be absurd to pitch them on hiring you because you don't know if you could help. You could make their business worse. So first you want to find out what are they experiencing? What is the problem? What are we trying to solve here? And these the, the why questions, the why conversation will help tease that out to uncover the, the sort of root motivation. So the three different why questions, they fall into categories. One is why this? The second one is why now? And the last one is why me? And you can you don't have to ask them in that order, but you just I generally I tell people to like have a piece of paper next to them uh, on the phone call and have a, a bunch of sort of versions of each of those questions underneath. So, you know, if you're going to say uh, you start the conversation, the client's going to brain dump for like 15 minutes about the project and all this self-diagnosis and what they think they want you to do. And it'll be very tactical, specific things like we want the buttons to be bigger and the checkout flow needs to be smoother and we're getting too much drop off on mobile. Can you make it more mobile friendly? They'll tell you all these specific things. Um, and usually they will fail to give you the big picture because it's so obvious to them that they feel like it's obvious to everyone. So after their brain dump is over and they've exhausted all of this sort of um, tactical information, I'll say, this is all great. I've got five pages of notes here already, uh, but can, I, I need a little context. Can we back up a little bit and talk about the big picture? Why do you even want to do this? Why not just, and then insert some cheaper alternative or some different alternative? Um, why not just handle this manually? You know, so my people usually make software. So the obvious why this question would be like, why not just do this manually? Oh, you've got a problem getting invoices out and you want to build software so you can get invoice out faster. Why don't you just hire another person to do invoicing instead of having one person doing it, just add another person. And then you don't have to pay someone like me. And they'll have some reason why they don't want to do that. And so you take note of that. And you could keep whatever it is that you do, you can come up with questions like that, diagnostic questions that would suggest every possible alternative that you can think of to something besides hiring someone expensive like you to do this kind of a thing. So once you're convinced and you've got a bunch of language from them, like words out of their mouth about why they have to do this, why they have to have this software built for invoicing or why they have to have this white paper or why they have to have these, this professional photography done. And you are convinced that yes, they have self-diagnosed correctly. I am convinced they do need the kind of thing that I do. So then you'd say, okay, why now? You know, why not wait six months or in the brain dump, you mentioned that it's been like this for two years. What changed that's causing you to, to reach out to, to me now? Why didn't you reach out to me before? Is this really urgent? And when you, with these sorts of questions, you find out how or what the level of urgency is for the project. And the more urgent it is, the more important it is to them, the more it's going to be worth to them. If it's not that urgent and they're like, yeah, we're just kind of in the exploratory phase. We might pull the trigger on this next year. I'm like, I'm like, okay, this, they're not ready for this. There's probably not going to be a lot of engagement from the client side. It's not that important. They'll probably drag their feet forever. Um, so I'd, I'd probably, I'd, I'd get less interested in the phone call 
and perhaps suggest that we you know keep in touch and then when it's actually urgent then you know we could talk then but usually usually by the time they're having phone calls like this it's usually pretty urgent um, and you want to know the reason why it's pretty urgent because you want to take that information and put it in the proposal so you could say they might say something like well amazon announced that they're thinking about coming into our space so this is our probably last opportunity in the next six months, if we don't capture maximum market share, we're just going to get steamrolled. Or they'll say some competitor, some other competitor is eating their lunch, or there's new government regulations coming and they need to beat the regulations to market. There'll be some reason that it's urgent. Uh, there'll be some big opportunity or some uh, expensive problem that they're experiencing that is is almost always pretty urgent. Uh, and then the last kind of question is. Why me? Why hire someone expensive like me? Why hire a specialist? Why can't you just do this internally? Why can't you have your cousin Vinny do it? Why don't you get an intern? Why don't you go to Fiverr? And you want you want it. This feels this is the weirdest one for people to ask because it, it's the one that feels the most like you're trying to, you know, push the client away. And and in fact, they'll sometimes laugh and be like, "Do you even want this job? It seems like you're talking yourself out of the project." You know, and in fact, you are, because you want to get the answers to all of those questions. Why can't they do something cheaper so that you can put it in the proposal? If you don't ask those questions and you don't get those answers and then you do send them a proposal, which is twice as high as anybody, any other proposals that they get from anyone else, they're immediately going to say, well, why don't we just hire my cousin Vinny? Why don't we just use an intern? Why don't we just use Fiverr? So you want to get answers to those questions first, because if any of those things are an option, they should go do that and they're not going to be a good fit for you. But if none of those are a good fit and they say, well, we've tried, you know, offshore teams before, but the language barrier was terrible and the time zone was terrible. And we used my cousin Vinny before and he screwed everything up. And you want to put that in the proposal. You've tried cheaper alternatives, but the time zone was a problem with the offshore teams and your cousin Vinny screwed things up and you lost six months and now everything is urgent. So you decided that it's time to invest in a specialist like me. And yes, that's going to be more expensive than the other options, but it's the only option for you at this point. You want that language so you can put it in the proposal. So if you have gone through the why conversation and there is a good fit between you and the client, the proposal is going to write itself. They basically told you the transformation that they're looking for, why they have to do it right now, and why they have to spend extra money to get a specialist like you. So it, it makes writing the proposal very easy. You can do it with, you know in an hour if you've taken good notes from the phone call. All right, so that's that's the quickest I can do on the why conversation but if you have questions like let's drill into it more yeah no it's brilliant I think that I think there's always like well how do you yeah talking yourself out but it just feels weird and then kind of but that doesn't get you to what the client how much it, they're prepared to pay for it mm -hmm. so how do how do you get to the bottom of that's what right. I always find most difficult is what without saying how much are you prepared to pay for this and right. do, do you ask that question um sometimes but not exactly like that so usually usually when you when you're asking the why this questions usually it will reveal itself uh, but if it doesn't you know they'll say something like they'll say something like oh well um uh what you know why do you need to do this why don't you just hire another another person why don't you just hire another person to do invoicing if they say something like well that would cost us forty thousand dollars a year and we haven't got that much money then you know that the reason that they're, they they think the software solution is going to be less than $40,000 a year. So it can reveal itself. 
Um, but they might say something like, well, we could do that, but we want to triple our business in the next two years. And we would have to just keep hiring people to do invoices. We don't want to scale like that. We want to something that scales much more easily. Now, you know that they're not worried about paying $40,000 per person to scale up their team. And they're, they're looking to triple their business. And you can easily find out roughly how big their business is revenue wise. So, you, so now we're talking like if it was a million dollar business, now they're looking to transform from a million dollars to $3 million in the next few years. And they believe that your software can contribute to that at some level. So now all of a sudden you're starting to get, you get numbers worked in there. Um, okay, so, but what happens if you get to the end of the conversation and you still don't have a sense if you're even in the ballpark for the, the like what you're imagining doing? You could say something like, okay, you know, I think there's, you're wrapping up the meeting. You could say, okay, I think there's, I think there's a good fit here. I'd like to put together a proposal. I can have it to you on Wednesday. Is that acceptable? And they'll say, yeah. And then you say, uh, you could say something like, all right, what would a home run look like? Like, what, what would be the home run if we knock this out of the park for you? What would that look like? And they'll sit back. A, a good client will sit back and be like, they get just dreamy look on their face. Be like, oh wow, if we if we if we could get out uh, ten invoices per week instead of three, that would be like that would be heavenly. And so you'd be like, okay, and and just use that to build up um, like uh, an idea of what it's worth to them. And if you're not, and if you still, if if that, if you don't have let me back up. What you're looking for is a back of the envelope calculation that you can use to just get into the ballpark of what it might be worth to someone. So if you if you know if they're saying like, oh, it would be so great because we if we could get out ten invoices per week instead of one, and I know that they have like two or three people doing it. Let's say they only have one person doing it now. And so I'm going to triple the productivity, roughly triple the productivity of that one person. I can kind of figure that, okay, it's at least worth the salary of two people plus some because that, you know, because all of the benefits of software on top of, you know, not having to manage these people, not having to pay FICA, not having to, you know, all the, the problems that come with managing someone and all of the health insurance and everything else. So if I'm going to basically triple the output of a single person, then I can tell a story in the proposal that that not only will this definitely triple the output of the one person that you have doing invoices, but it will continue to pay dividends year over year over year. Like it's not going to go away. So you don't have to keep paying, you know, if you hired two people, you'd have to keep paying them next year and the year after that and the year after that. The software, you don't have to keep paying for it. It's a one-time cost. So I could, you could easily engineer it reverse like that, reverse engineer it like that. So yeah, so ask them what would a home run look like? Um, if they can't answer that, then I'd start to get nervous that the client's not satisfiable. Like I don't know what my goal is if they, if they don't even know. Um, you could say, well, what would be a disaster? What happens if we worked on this for six months? What's the worst possible outcome that you can think of? And they'd say something like, and, and they might be able to come up with a disaster scenario and then you just reverse it for like the success scenario. And another thing that that if if it hasn't been uncovered already, it's good to have a a progress metric, a progress metric. So there's a success metric like a home run would look like going from three invoices a week to ten. Um, a progress metric would be something like, um, yeah, like that the 
the the invoicing person, like the accountant person, is using the software and they're giving good feedback on it. They like it better than the old system. So you could, it's good to have a progress metric that you can use while the project is in progress to make sure that you're on the right track. You're headed toward the goal. So it could be a lot of times it is like in software. A lot of times it's user adoption. Like, like do the users like the prototype? Do they like this screen? Do they like that? And if they're giving it five stars every time we do a design review, then it's going to be no surprise at the end of six months when they're happy to use it and their productivity is dramatically increased. So you you can pretty much tell that it's going to work. It's not like this. Geez, I hope it works six months later and a big reveal and you release it and like nobody likes it. No one wants to use it. They want to stay in the old system or they want to use the old process or whatever it is. So if you can find a progress metric along the way, it basically ensures that you're going to be on the right track to hit the ultimate success metric at the end of the at the end of the project. Um, so those are some extra things that you can do if you still can't get a sense of what the budget is. And then as a last resort, I would rarely do this, but sometimes you can say, listen, I'm just not seeing the business case here. Like, how much were you planning on budgeting for this anyway? Like, I'll, write, I'll put it together a proposal for you, but I think it's going to be way out of the ballpark. And they'll say, well, well, how much do you think it's going to be? And I could say, you might say something like, well, at the high end, this could be a quarter of a million dollars and at the low end, it'd be like 65,000. Like, is that kind of what you were thinking? And you can gauge by the reaction if you're anywhere near the right number. And if you're remotely good at this, they'll say, well, I mean, quarter of a million, that's like way more than we expected, but 65 is probably in the ballpark. So then you can get some pricing guidance from them if you really could not figure out anything prior to that. But in general, that's definitely a last resort because how much they have budgeted for the solution assumes that they picked the right solution. So like the, to me, the budget is actually kind of irrelevant um, because it, they've already gone way down the path of like, we already decided we need a, a software developer. We already decided we need this. We already decided we need that. How much should we, should we earmark for that? Uh, 75,000 probably. But that 75,000 is based on perhaps faulty assumptions and a bad plan. Usually in a proposal, I want to have a lot of latitude about how I'm going to help them transform from their current state to their desired future state. And it, and it almost always, virtually always, includes options on the proposal that are not the thing that they initially came to me for, or the thing they thought they, the thing they brain dumped in the first 15 minutes of the meeting, you know, like the very specific tactical things. I might come up with an option one that is training and isn't me building anything. like. Like, oh, you, you want to get more invoices out, but I, you know, you shared with me your process and you're using software that already does this. So for $10,000, I'll just teach this, the, the accountant how to use the software he already has and, and you'll be good to go. And that might be one of the options I put, even though they came to me for software development, one of the options might be out of left field uh, in terms of the implementation, but the goal, the outcome, the business outcome is the same because I uncovered the business outcome and I can be creative with how I help them reach that outcome. So I think, yeah, so I think it's really interesting because I think you kind of, you think you've wasted discovery call time or kind of discovery meeting time, but actually it's making sure that you're asking all the questions that you really need to know the answer to rather than just having a kind of light conversation or we need this, we need that and actually kind of really digging into it so that you can actually get a good idea of what the client actually wants and not what they think they want. So they, they want what they want, 
but you want to get to the you want to get deeper into the wants. You want to get to a deeper want. And they'll almost never share that automatically because it's too obvious to them. So you want to get deeper, deeper, deeper in there because if if they're not an expert at what you do, like I don't care what you do, they're probably not an expert at it and you are, they're almost certainly going to ask for the wrong thing. It'd be like trying to tell your doctor how to do heart surgery on you. Of course, you're not going to tell them the right thing to do. Like you might have ideas about it or opinions and like I want the decision here and don't make it too long. You know, it's almost bikini season. But you let like let them be the expert of their business and what they want and their customers and their goals. That's they are the expert of that. But they are not the expert of whatever it is you do, whether it's software development or photography or marketing. They're not the expert of that. That's why they're talking to you. So don't let them tell you how to do your job by coming to you with a punch list and saying, here's the punch list of things. You'd be like, okay, I can do all that, but let's let the doctor decide how to do the surgery. And you just tell me what the symptoms are and what your desired outcome is, and I'll come up with the best plan. They might have accidentally come up with the best plan. Maybe they talked to some smart people and they have this plan and they did a good job, but usually they don't. Usually there's a, there's a, a couple of other ways to skin the cat that never occurred to them that are dramatically less expensive to, to them, but also dramatically easier for you. So you set a lower, you know, you, you set a lower price than you would have if you're doing the really, really hard stuff, but the profitability could be dramatically higher. So like, you know, if they come to me for a project that let's just say um, an implementation would, I'd have to charge $100,000 for it. But there's a way that I could just train them to not even have to build like, like, but I don't even have to do an implementation. I can just train Bob how to use Excel. I'll just show Bob how to use Excel and charge $10,000 for that instead of $100,000, but it only takes me an hour instead of taking me 100 hours. I would rather do the 100 hour, I'd rather do the one hour highly profitable thing all day long than one big, huge, risky project where you have to stay on top of the scope, make sure that everybody's focused on the goal and not on the tactics. And it's way less risk, much higher profit. And if I can sell more and more of those training Bob how to use Excel engagements, my profitability will go through the roof. And, you know, and, and hourly is hourly, of course, is long gone in this scenario. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. Yeah, you thought, well, they could spend $100,000, but you're like, well, actually, I could give you a solution over here. But it's how you how do you do you then offer options mm-hmm. to the client yeah. which is well i could do this one and this one and this one and and how do you pitch those if you know the clients you've kind of worked out that the client's roughly going to spend a hundred thousand dollars or prepared to spend a hundred thousand yeah. dollars or needs to spend up it's to a hundred thousand dollars for a full solution the, yeah the value to them is worth a hundred thousand dollars so if they let's keep using the same metaphor if they're looking to triple their um invoicing capacity and and I roughly calculate that that's worth $100,000 to them, then I would come to them with a proposal and I would come up with three prices that are a fraction of that value, what it's worth to them. That's the value to the client, the perceived value. I'm roughly, I'm guesstimating that it's worth about $100,000 a year to them. So I'm gonna come to them with a proposal that has three prices, always three, not two, definitely not one, and not four or five exactly three it's like magic in human psychology they're gonna it's gonna make them want to choose option two so and and they don't get overwhelmed by choice and you're not giving them an ultimatum like take it or leave it with one option so with three options i'll probably use what i call a goldilocks pricing curve where the first option is 10 percent of the value 
the second option is 22% of the value, and the third option is 50% of the value. And this is a little bit squishy because I'm guesstimating the value, but assuming I'm even roughly in the ballpark with the value, and, uh, and I know that they think I can contribute something to the outcome, or they wouldn't have reached out to me in the first place, or they wouldn't have agreed to talk to me, even if I reached out to them, so they believe I can contribute something. So surely I can at least contribute 10%. So I'm gonna have a 10%, so the, the lowest option is 10%. So if the value is 100,000 and I'm gonna set a price at $10,000 for option one, I'm gonna say, all right, what would I be happy to do for $10,000? Train Bob how to use Excel. All right, yeah, that's an idea. And what, what uh, can we expect in terms of um, productivity increase? moving toward that that goal of tripling invoice uh, tripling invo invoicing capacity can i get them there potentially by training bob maybe i don't know but let's say let's say i could get them much closer for $10,000 let's say i let's say i was comfortable guaranteeing that i could double bob's capacity to, to send out invoices in a week by training them how to use, use the software maybe tell them about a macro help them install it so maybe i can make $10,000 in like 2 or 3 hours that's a pretty good effective hourly rate. But then at $22,000, I would say, all right, again, we're scope last. What could I do for $22,000 to help them increase their invoicing capacity? Maybe I've got an option here where I write a macro that is specific to the company's goals, but it just plugs into Bob's computer and he, he just uses it, he just presses a button. I, I teach him how to use the software. I train, maybe it takes me I don't know, for, uh, eh, let's just, uh, let's say it takes me 10 hours all in meetings and everything, 10 hours for $22,000. And that's going to get them to, you know, a little close to 3x the um, uh, invoice capacity. Maybe it even gets them to 3x invoice capacity, but it doesn't scale past Bob. So they're still limited. They're stuck at 3x. And now if they were going to go to, you know, if they wanted to double that, they'd have to add Alice or, you know, whatever, another person. So option three is the full-on soup to nuts. Maybe I start, I do all three things. I start by training Bob how to use the software. I give him a macro so that he can immediately get started and immediately get up to that triple uh, capacity. But I'm also going to build a solution that runs on top that people can log into and they don't, eventually they won't have to use Excel and it's just going to be processing these things in the back end somehow. You know, I add a server, I add some processing on the server. Um, whatever, a customer portal so they can self-serve and download their own invoices, whatever the case may be. All of these things increase the, because I've understood that what they really need to do is increase the capacity of their invoicing process because it's a bottleneck that's holding them back from this triple growth that they want. So if I'm just focusing on invoice capacity and I can deliver it in these at these three different levels, I can, you know, they can choose between them. So if the prices are 10,000, 22,000 and 50,000 with the Goldilocks pricing curve, that 50,000, they're going to say, oh, that's kind of a lot. We weren't planning on spending that much. But this second option looks pretty affordable compared to that. And, you know, we could do option one, but if we're going to do that, we might as well just do option two or we're going to hit a brick wall really quick. If we just do option one, we might as well do option two. So you're really creative in the scope that you that you set to fit into each of these three budgets that you've given yourself. So just to recap that, you set the, you figure out, guesstimate the value to the client, then you reverse engineer three prices 
then and only then do you decide what you're going to do. What's the scope? What can I do that I'd be very happy to do for $10,000? What could I do that I'd be very happy to do for $22,000? What could I do that I'd be very happy to do for $50,000? You define the scope after you've set acceptable prices and then you present that to the client and they, they can choose and they'll probably choose two unless your price unless you dramatically undervalued the the value and then they'll probably choose option three and then if you they choose option three if that keeps happening people keep choosing your option three your prices are just way too low oh yeah that's a really good point and do you think it makes any difference what size your project is so you know whether it's a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars that people are looking at do you think there's a minimum that you need to have in order to make this worth doing uh yeah i do actually um it's it takes a fair level of emotional energy to have a sales interview and go through the why conversation. The client has to be fairly engaged in the process. It needs to be kind of a big deal. The project needs to be kind of a big deal or they're going to be annoyed by this kind of a conversation. Uh, so I wouldn't bother doing it with, uh, you know, toward the end when I was doing software consulting still, uh, was like in the mobile space, toward the end I wouldn't even talk to somebody unless I had the sense that my option one was going to be about 50 grand. So it works best for really, it, it really shines. You could use it for anything, but it really shines when the project is really big, bet the business project for the, for the business, and it's really urgent. And ideally, you've strongly differentiated yourself from all of the other options out there. So that's a whole nother conversation about positioning. But um, that's, that's the best case scenario is it's it, they have to do this. It's really urgent and they really want you specifically. Yeah. And I think even if you even if you don't have enormous projects in your business, I think that actually just really starting to think about the why conversations, even if you're just having a half hour discovery call, start having those sorts of conversations because it helps you to price to price things much more, much more effectively takes all the pressure off you too you don't have to prove anything you don't have to persuade them you don't have to try and close 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 you're just you're more like you're more like a doctor it's like imagine when you go to the doctor the doctor's not like here's what i'm gonna do i could i could cut you open here and i could do that and the other and here are all the past people that i cut open it's like that's no fun it's like and it's and it's not appropriate like you're being brought in as the expert on whatever your your area is your focus area is and so just like Ask questions like a doctor would. Tell me where it hurts. How long has it been like this? What did it used to be like? What would be an acceptable, you know, uh, recovery? You know, like what, how long do you want this to take? Uh, how much time can you devote to this? How much uh, money could you devote to this? Like how, how you know, or to, to the car mechanic, a good car mechanic would be like, well, how much do you really want to spend getting this jalopy back up to, you know, like so they can get on the road? There's going to be a number. So if you if you just come into the sales meeting and just you're super diagnostic about it and be like, yeah, you I mean, I can do everything you want, but why bother? You know, is this really can we just like make sure this is the right thing for the company? Because there might be a much cheaper, easier way to do this if I understand what you're trying to accomplish. Good clients, clients that would be a good fit are going to love that they're going to and you're going to differentiate yourself from anybody else they talk to because everybody else is going to come with a pitch deck and be like, here are my my. Um, testimonials and here are my like skill here's a big list of my skills and here are all the awards I won and here are my other client logos and they're just gonna be pushing 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 where you're just like you're chill and you're like I'm not even sure I can help I can do these things but let's make sure these are the right things to do 
Yeah, and I think making sure that the client, you know, that you're doing the right thing by the client is always, you know, always makes things better in the client's eyes. Right. And don't forget that you're harming them by definition. They're giving you a bunch of money that harms their business. So you have to make their business like you have to heal the business more than you harmed it. So it's not like, you know, somebody comes in and is like, uh, like here's a great example from the web development world. Like somebody contacts you, you're going to have a phone call and you go check out their website first. And, and in your opinion, it's terrible. And you have all these ideas about how you would change it. And then you go into the meeting and you're like, here's all the things I would do to your website. I change this and I change that and I change the other. It, that's not, that's like the surgeon, like, like getting excited about all the things they're going to do to you. That's not the, it's not the right approach. You want to, <laughs> you want to find out what is wrong with it. The things that you think are wrong with it might not be a problem for that business. It might be something completely different. It might be like their funnel or something that they need help with, but they're asking for the wrong things. You know, they, they might need a white paper, not a redesign. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's really interesting. I think it's really good to ask those questions. And lastly, because I could get, we could talk about this for hours, is about retainers. I know you mm -hmm. have quite strong opinions about retainers yeah. as well. It's a very poorly understood word. It's, it's used usually in the legal sense uh, as a bucket of hours, prepayment for a bucket of hours. So it's like, you know, whatever, $10,000 for 100 hours and we'll let you know when we run out and then you can top it up. And that's better than plain old hourly in the sense that you're getting paid in advance and not in arrears. So, you know, somebody can't walk out on that final payment or whatever. I mean, you've got the money in advance, so you don't have to wait for it, but it's still, you're still have to track out. I mean, it's still the same thing. Like all the same problems exist. It limits your income. You can't, um, you, you can get to work before you really know what they're trying to accomplish. You could be changing. They could be asking you to change stuff that is actually making their business demonstrably worse because they're not the expert and you are, but you're letting them tell you what to do. So it still has all the same problems, um, that sort of lawyer retainer model. Uh, but occasionally for certain things, it, it's at least better than billing hourly in arrears. Um, when I talk about retainers, I specifically mean advisory retainers. So you've positioned yourself in the marketplace as an expert at something. You are the go-to person for something highly specific. And it attracts people who are interested in that specific thing or see the value in it and could benefit from it. And they pay you on a monthly basis for access to your expertise. So true consulting, you are answering questions. They come to you for advice, to consult with you. Um, the term consulting is extremely blurred by company, big consulting companies like Deloitte, consulting companies like Deloitte, who call themselves consultants, but really their business model is to send an army of software developers into your business to bill you $200 an hour as long as they possibly can. That's not consulting. Consulting is consulting. Like, I would like to consult with you. I would like your advice. That's consulting. So advisory consulting is, is a subscription for access to your brain. So the, you know, the buyer and the client side, usually it's someone really high up, like the head of a big department or like an owner, they will, they'll say, Hey, we're in the middle of this really big project. Um, we actually can't afford to have you implement it. We've got a, an inexpensive team offshore that's going to implement it, but we would like to have you engaged as a consultant to give us, um, to, to bounce ideas off of, to, um, say, is it, does this invoice seem crazy? Um, it, the, the dev shop is pushing back on us is, are what is what they're saying true? Or are they just trying to like milk us for more hourly, hourly dollars? 
And so you're engaged as a brain, not hands. You're engaged as, uh, as your smarts are, are what they're subscribed to. And you just say, uh, you know, the way I used to do it was, uh, was they'd have 24, but the one person, the buyer, would have 24-7 access to me uh, by usually now Slack, but you, before it used to be email and text message and, and voicemail. And I'd get back to them within 90 minutes during business hours or the next day if it was after hours, but they could contact me anytime as much as they wanted. And it was great. You, you know, for years, I'd make $10,000 a month for multiple clients for years and years and years for them to ask me questions about my area of expertise, which at the time was like mobile, uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, you know, as you know, and, and how those things worked on iOS and Android. So if somebody had a big project and they were outsourcing it to a huge team, uh, that they didn't maybe hundred percent trust, or they didn't feel like they communicated well, they would hire me to kind of, to, to be there virtually to, be their advocate and because I understood the language of the dev shop and I understood the needs of the business. And so I was the sort of trusted advisor in the middle. So that to me, that is ideal situation for a retainer. Yeah, I think it's really important. I get to talk to a lot of kind of HR consultants and stuff like that. It's like they're paying to have your brain on tap. They're not paying for a number of hours. They're not paying mm -hmm. for a number of things that you do. They're right. paying because they might need your expertise. And some months they might not need any, and other months they might not. They might need a lot. So. Yeah, I've had clients go for six months or longer and never contact me at all. Yeah, and then some months it goes a bit mad. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, it, it it levels out, but you know, sometimes it's busy, but lots of times it's quiet. Oh, this is brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much. How do people find you? Where's the best place? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about value pricing a lot here. If folks want to learn more about that, go to valuepricingbootcamp.com and you'll get a six-day free email course. And it's from my email address. So if you reply to any of those, it goes straight to my inbox and we can start a conversation there. Yeah, and it's, I, I have to vouch for the fact that it's a really good big camp, so do sign up. Well, thanks ever so much. Thank you for listening to the Pricing Queen podcast with me, Sally Farrant. Please do leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps spread the word and get more people listening. Make sure you're following me on Instagram at the Pricing Queen or One Word, where I share more tips and advice on how to make more money in your small business. See you next time, Pricing Queens. Mm -hmm.